11 o'clock. How you doing today? Look at you. You are here. You are here. You made it. I am so proud of you. You know, listen, we got weather in Chicago, okay? We're used to it. We eat snow for breakfast, okay? So I am so glad that you are here. And I want to say a special welcome to all of you who are here in this room, our overflow space. I especially want to say a welcome to those of you who are online. And let me just say a quick uh, word theologically to those of you who live in Chicago and normally would be in this room, but you decided to have a snow day today and you're in your pajamas watching online. First of all, uh, welcome. We're glad you're here. Uh, I just want to let you know something. Uh, God doesn't judge you for staying home uh, on a snow day like this uh, from church. Now, I'm not saying that these people aren't judging you. I'm, I'm just saying that God doesn't judge you. And so for wherever you're at, we're so glad that you're here. My name is Jarrett, one of the lead pastors here, and we are in a teaching series called The Origin of Family. We've been looking at God's idea and God's ideal for family. Where does this idea of family come from? And specifically, what we're going to be looking at today is a new kind of family that God invites us into, a new way of actually being family with and for each other. Not a perfect family, but a transforming family, one that you actually get to choose to be a part of, one that you actually get to help form, and one that can radically change the way you see and love the family that you've got. Now, I don't know if you had an experience like this growing up. I, I had with a couple different friends. You ever go over to a friend's house and realize that they do things completely different than you do at your family's house? In fact, they do things in your mind way better, right? You ever have a friend like that? You go over to their house and it's like they got no rules over there. They just kind of do, it's like Lord of the Flies in that house. And you loved it when you were over there. Like I had a friend who's, okay, in our family, uh, we weren't allowed to have sugared cereal for breakfast. It was like one of the big points my mom made. So we had like Cheerios. And if they were feeling extra fancy, honey nut Cheerios. But it was like plain, boring. But at my friend's house, they had Lucky Charms, Frosted Flakes, Fruit Loops, like all the important cereals. They had, and they could eat them whenever they wanted to. And they watched shows that we didn't watch in our house. You know, I was like, oh, I didn't even know this show existed. I don't get to watch this in my house. I loved being at their house. And they even had something we didn't have in our house. They had at their house an Atari video game system. I mean, that was some next level stuff. And I just remember coming home from sleepovers at their house, coming back after a play date to my house, and just looking in disgust at my family. <laughs> My unevolved, lame family, like how could you disappoint me? I mean, that, you ever have one of those feelings where you come back and realize, man, they, they do, th I, like, I like how they do things there more than I do how we do things here. And maybe you had this question whether you could articulate it or not at the time. In fact, maybe, maybe you actually still have this question and you've been wondering and working out for years, what do you do with the family God gave you? Like, what do you do? You didn't get to choose the family God gave you. So what do you do with the family that God gave you? The beautiful and even broken, the imperfect, complex family that God gave you. What do you do with the family that God actually gave to you? Now, what Jesus did with the family he gave him, that God gave him, is very interesting. In fact, it was very unexpected and quite radical. There was a moment in Matthew chapter 12, you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 12, where Jesus was brought someone who was blind and who was mute, couldn't see, couldn't speak, and also, as if that wasn't enough, demon-possessed. So 
There's that. And Jesus heals him right there in that moment. Powerful moment of healing, like miraculous moment. And then Jesus is explaining to the crowds that had gathered there, the religious leaders that had come there to question him. He was explaining where his power came from. It's a really important moment. He's explaining that only God could have this kind of power. And God has given that power to me. And he's in the middle of kind of making this big point. When someone he kind of sees off in the corner begins kind of edging their way up closer to where he was and interrupts him in the middle of his teaching. Kind of like goes, oh, Jesus, pardon me, Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus, pardon me, Jesus. And like interrupts him in the middle of it and says, Jesus, your family's here. Your family's, your family's here. Now, that may seem like a, just a little bit of an interruption, but it was a big interruption for that moment for Jesus. Because in that moment, it wouldn't have been unexpected for someone to do that because family really was everything in that culture, in that day. It was no surprise that someone would interrupt and say, hey, here's the people that have the most precedent in your life. You know, like I know you're busy like casting out demons, but your family's here. And so look at what Jesus says in Matthew 12. Again, you don't have to turn there. We'll just put it up on the screen for you. Look at what Jesus says, what he did with the family God gave him. He then replied to the person who interrupted him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Now, if you've studied Jesus or are familiar with the life of Jesus, it's a really risky thing when he asks a question like this. Really, when he asks any question, everyone's a little uncomfortable and afraid they're going to do it wrong. And you can imagine you're this guy who's just totally interrupted the moment, and Jesus asks this question, who are my mother? Who is my brother's? And, you know, he's kind of like, dumb. I was going to say these guys, like I was going to say them, because they told me, but I'm thinking that's not the right answer. And so <laughs> Jesus goes on to say in verse 49, pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. This is who my family is. Verse 50, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sisters and my mother. Oh, dang, Jesus. Like, this is a moment. In front of his family and in front of the crowd, he redefined and reoriented, reframed family. He said that there is actually a, another kind of family. Now, again, this was very, very radical to do in his culture, in his day. In first century Judaism, the family was the center of it all. It was the hub that everything else revolved around. The family sort of determined your social status, your religious practice. They determined your vocation and even the destination of where you would live. All of it revolved around the family unit. Now, as best we know from the life of Jesus, he spent about 30 years with his physical family, his earthly family, the family that God gave him, about 30 years living in relative obscurity with his family. And as best we can tell at this point in Matthew chapter 12, he had known his disciples for maybe a year or two at best. So here he says, these people that he spent his whole life with and these people that he was just getting to know, he said, this is who my real, my true family is. It was shocking in that moment. And you can imagine Jesus' brother James leaning over to Mary in that moment and saying, still your favorite? Like you can imagine like... <laughs> Because that was a big statement that Jesus was making. What Jesus is teaching us here is that the family you got isn't the only family that God gave you. That he, in fact, has given you another family, a family that you get to choose to be a part of. It's a spiritual family. Jesus said anyone who does, who says yes to God my Father, who says yes to God, that's who my family is. It's made up of imperfect people, but they're bound together by perfect love, by God's 
perfect love. Now, to be really clear, Jesus is not devaluing family. He's not saying that family doesn't matter. If that were so, he wouldn't have spent the disproportionate amount of his life with his family. He's not saying family doesn't matter. He's just sort of reframing and saying there is a greater family that's bigger than the family that you've got, that's bigger even than your understanding of family, that supersedes your physical family, and it's actually your spiritual family. It's not a family that you are born into. It's a family that you are, in fact, born again into. It's a big distinction that Jesus is making. And as we talked about last week, this is the metaphor that God uses throughout the Bible to talk about how he relates to us, that God is our perfect parent who loves us perfectly. And he calls you his beloved daughter. And he calls you his beloved son. And we're to call each other brother and sister. It's a whole new way of relating to each other because it's a whole new family built on a different set at times of values and traditions. And it gives us a whole new vision and purpose. And I don't think we get how significant that is, that that's really what you are. Your brother, we're brothers and sisters, that I actually have family all over the world that I'll never meet in my life, but they're a part of a spiritual family that I'm invited into. In fact, that goes back thousands of years that I'm connected to, a family that ultimately will never end. That's an amazing thing, and I just think we don't get that enough. I think we can come in to church like we do today or to watch online and just kind of just be spectators, passengers on a bus next to each other, and miss how significant this relationship is. Is. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to the person next to you right now, and I want you to say, what up, bro? Or what up, sis? I want you, no, I'm serious. Like, actually turn to someone next to you and say, what up, bro? What up, sis? We family. We family. Now, this is a bigger concept than we get, and it's bigger than just a little interaction like that. This is deeply theological stuff. It's how we relate to God, how we see ourselves, how we relate to others, and ultimately how we relate to the family that God gave us, how we relate to the family that we came from. And so I want you to get a picture of what it looks like to be a part of this new family that God has invited each and every one of us into. So grab a Bible, if you would, and turn to Colossians chapter 3. If you have a Bible with you, just go straight to Colossians 3. If not, look right under your seat where he pulled that survey out earlier. Uh, there should be a Bible right there waiting for you, and you can turn to page 955 in the Soul City Bible. That'll get you to Colossians chapter 3 super fast. Let me give you some context as to where we're coming at in this passage, Colossians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul is writing a letter to a church in the city of Colossae, and he's talking about what happens when we are made new in Jesus. That we are not only made new, but that we are in fact, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're made one with each other. That all of the uh, former uh, things that would separate us, all of the things that in our culture and our society would keep us from each other, all of those things lose their power in the presence, the reality of Jesus and in this new spiritual family. And so Paul's talking about what this family looks like and then he begins to describe them. He begins to describe you. This is what he says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. He says, therefore, as God's chosen people. Now, some translations actually have the word, therefore, as God's chosen family. Therefore, as God's new family. As God's chosen people. God has chosen to love. He chooses to love and lavishes love on you. In fact, Paul even says that. Holy and dearly what? Holy and dearly 
love, that that's who you are. Before you could ever even do anything for God, you were already loved. Therefore, as God's chosen family, holy and dearly loved, he says this, clothe yourselves, put on compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Now, there's a lot of other words used to describe the family of God, but just in this passage, I want you to pay attention to the how Paul uses the language he uses to talk about who you are when you enter into this new family. He uses those words. He says, clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Paul's saying that there is a new way that we are to relate to each other and to others. And all of these attributes that he's using here, notice the, how he's using them. They're not verbs. They're nouns. They're states of being. They are what is to already be true of you. That when you enter into relationship with God, this is who you really are. You are compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. That this is a state of being within which we move through this world and we relate to God and to each other. This is true of anyone who enters into relationship with God. Anyone who enters into this new kind of family, regardless of the family that you come from, this is who you are to become. That's why we talk about transformation so much here. We are trying to help each other become who God already created us to be. And this is what God says is true of you. This is who you are. But then he goes on in verse 13, and then we move from nouns to verbs. And he says this, he says, to bear with each other and to what? And to... Forgive one another, bear with each other, and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Bear with each other means to have grace for, to create space for. It's not just to put up with, it's to embrace, to bear with, to stay with one another and forgive each other if you have anything, any grievance that comes against you. Then he says this, very important point, forgive as the Lord forgave you. These are action words, active words, real-time choices that you and I actually get to make. And the point here also is that it's not if, you know, Paul uses that word, but really that's not what that word means. It doesn't mean if it happens to be that someone hurts you. The reality is it's when we hurt each other. When we, because this is what happens when you're in relationship with anyone. You bump up against each other. You bring all of your imperfection into relationship and boom, boom, it's bound to happen at some point. It's not if someone hurts you or if someone wounds you or if someone disappoints you or if someone fails you. It's when they do and it's when you do for others. Why? Because again, it all comes back to this idea. We are imperfect people bound by perfect love. We're a room full of imperfect people. If you came here looking for a perfect church, Sorry to let you know, this is not that kind of place. We are not perfect people. It's a room filled with imperfect people. Every single one of us is an imperfect person. Do you know how I know this? Do you know how I know how imperfect people can be? Because I'm married to an imperfect person. It's, no, I mean, okay, she's out of town this weekend, so don't tell Jeannie I said, don't, just can we agree, don't tell her I said that. She'll punish me again. All right, so... Oh, and she's married to an imperfect person. The person sitting next to you, imperfect person. Now, this is really important to get. Because of our imperfection, bound together by God's perfect love, we are going to hurt each other. It's bound to happen. 
And so when we do, we forgive each other. Why? Because God's perfect love has already forgiven you. It's already, see that action word, forgive, forgive? You've already been forgiven. You've already been offered forgiveness. And in real time, when we confess our sin, our imperfection, our brokenness to God, he forgives, he forgives, he forgives. Without fail, he forgives. See, we are able to forgive each other because we have been forgiven by God. That's who we learn it from, our perfect parent. This is why the author David Stoop in his book, uh, Forgiving Our Parents, Forgiving Ourselves, great book, he says this, that we must let our forgivenness express itself in forgiveness. That we must let our forgiveness, this state of being forgiven by God, we must let our forgivenness express itself in forgiveness, the act of forgiving others. Question, when was the last time you asked for forgiveness from someone? Not rationalized, justified, given all your reasons why you were right in doing whatever it is that you did. When was the last time you humbled yourself and asked for forgiveness? When was the last time that someone forgave you? Can you think back to a time when someone forgave you? Listen, it happens regularly for me. Why? Because I'm an imperfect person. I hurt people. It's part of what I do. It's not all of what I do, but it's bound to happen at some point. And recently, a good friend of mine, uh, we were working on something together, and he needed some information from me. And so he texted me, and he said, hey, can you send over, you know, what I needed, blah, blah, blah. And I saw the text, and I did that thing that maybe you did too. I saw the text, and I didn't have time in that moment to reply to the text with all the information he needed. But I thought to myself, I see the text. I acknowledge the text. I'm going to get to the text a little bit later. Got some other things to do first. I'll get to it. And then so that kind of dropped down a little bit later in my day, a little bit later in my day, and then it rolled over into the next day. It's not like I forgot about it. I still knew it was there. It was just sort of getting lower and lower and lower on the list until eventually a couple days later, he texted me back and said, hey, but for real, I need that. Can you text me that information? And I had a moment where I thought, oh yeah, I should just probably stop and take five minutes right now and get him all the information that he needs. Uh, but I didn't. For whatever reason, I just didn't. I kept busy and I kept moving. I didn't even say like, I'll get it to you later because I didn't want to waste and fill up his like text dialogue with, I'll get it to you, I'll get it to you. I'd rather just give it to him. Well, I didn't <laughs> for like two weeks. Oh, yeah, imperfect. And... <laughs> We saw each other. We were having a, a, a meal together, and we, so we were getting together, and I knew we were going to see each other, so I thought, okay, I probably should show up uh, with the information that he requested two weeks ago. And so I showed up with it, and I sat down, and I said, kind of right off the bat, hey, I'm so sorry. You know, I got so busy and distracted, and, and it was so awesome. He didn't let me off the hook. He just went, well, listen, in our relationship, I kind of, I've, I hold us to a higher standard of communication with each other. I, this is kind of what I, I, I feel like we're here. And that way you treated me made me think we are down here. Oh, man, it was like, okay. <laughs> and so then I had to say, you're right. Hey, will you, for, will you forgive me? That was a total miss on my part. I don't, even, I don't even have a good excuse, good reason. I just dropped the ball. Will you forgive me for leaving you hanging like that in communication? Do you know what I love about this friend? Without missing a beat, he said, of course I forgive you course I forgive you. And I'm holding us as this kind of relationship. That feeling of being forgiven, you know what's so great? I didn't carry that around with me a single second after that meeting. I didn't walk around with the guilt and obligation of, oh man, I really let him down. Oh, I'm really, I really got to do better in this relationship. Why? Because I was forgiven. The slate was wiped clean. 
we moved forward together. And the next time he texted me, you better believe I replied. I learned my lesson <laughs> and I replied. When you've been forgiven, when you've felt that, when you've had someone choose to forgive you, how can you not choose to forgive others? How can you say that the same rules don't apply to them, especially in light of our relationship with our perfect parent, God, that he chooses to forgive you, he chooses to forgive me. When I ask, when I come to him and say, God, will you forgive me? Because of that, how can I not forgive my brother or my sister? So again, question, is there anyone in your life, your relational world right now, that you are refusing to forgive? that you have somehow justified a workaround, a loophole, that the same rules that God uses with you don't apply to them? Is there anyone in your life that you need to take what Paul is saying here to not only bear with, but to actually forgive, or that you need to ask forgiveness from? Maybe it's someone in your family, your physical family. Maybe you've been carrying around unforgiveness for years and trying to hold it over them of some sort of imaginary leverage or power to make them pay for whatever it is they did to you, and maybe you can't even really remember what it was they did. Is there any place in your life where you need to practice what has been offered to you, the forgiveness of God? Now, Paul goes on to say this. He kind of wraps up this thought, this picture of this new family by saying this in Colossians 3, 14. He says, and over all these virtues that we just talked about, kindness and gentleness and patience and humility and bearing with each other and forgiveness, over all of these things, put on what? Put on love. Put on God's love, which he says binds them all together in perfect unity, which kind of holds the whole thing, this whole family together. I love the way the message translation uh, uses that that phrase, uh, put on love, which binds them together. The message translation says, love is your basic all-purpose garment. Like, love is the new black, right? Like, it, (laughs) it just covers everything. It holds it all together. That when all else fails, love, love. Let the love that God has for you be the love that you offer others. Let love not obligation. Let love, not guilt. Let love, not patterns or habits or history. Let love, even when you don't receive love back, let love be what you offer to others in the same way that God has offered it to you. Paul is painting a beautiful picture here of what it means to be a part of this new spiritual family, giving us a way that we relate to God and to each other and even to our physical families. He says that when you say yes to Jesus, basically what you get is you get like a whole new wardrobe. You get a whole new wardrobe to put on. Remember he said, put on these truths about who you actually are, to put them on. And in fact, what's so great about these truths, these characteristics of God that you were invited to clothe yourself in is you will never grow out of them. In fact, you'll spend the rest of your life growing into them until they become the way that you relate to God and to others. You get a whole new wardrobe when you enter into relationship, the family of God. Now, when you were a kid, uh, you didn't have much say in the clothes that you wore. True? 
Like you didn't get to pick. Like, you, like the clothes you wore when you were a little kid had really nothing to do with your taste or preferences. Let's be honest. You had very little taste or preference when you were five years old. So your parents just chose them for you, right? And oftentimes it wasn't out of a lot of intentionality. It was probably more out of utility. It's sort of like, well, this is what they need. This is kind of what we have to get. They need new pants. Or it's basically whatever your older siblings grew out of. Then it was handed down to you. You didn't have a ton of say in what you wore. I remember as a kid, uh, my mom used to buy me, I don't even know if they make these still. Uh, my mom used to buy me jeans called Tough Skins jeans. Anyone heard of Tough Skins jeans? Well, they were revolutionary. And Tough Skins jeans uh, had the knees were reinforced with some sort of space age polymer steel mesh sort of like they were like three inches thicker on the knees of tough skin so you couldn't fully ever bend your knees all the way but they were tough skins and the reason they made them that way is because kids like to just slide in the grass and slide on the ground and I'd come home with rips and tears in the knees of my pants and so my mom said haha tough skins were they fashionable no no they were not were they functional yes they were functional they got me a couple more months with those pants. You didn't get to choose the clothes that you got to wear. They were chosen for you as a kid until you got a little bit later, maybe sixth grade, seventh grade, middle school, high school. That's when you began to choose the clothes that you would wear out into the world. You got to choose. I'm not saying you made great choices. I'm just saying you made choices. In fact, there was a season when I was in the eighth grade that I was really into bolo ties. I don't even know if you know what a bolo tie is, but I had no less than five bolo ties in my closet. That's no joke at any given time. I had a bolo tie for every day of the week at school. I was really into them. Were they fashionable? No, they were not. But it was the 80s and we were doing the best that we could with what we had at the time. See, there was a time where you didn't get to choose what you wore, but eventually you had the choice. In fact, you still have the choice with what you're going to wear out into the world. And the same is true when it comes to what you learned about life and God and faith and the world when you learned it from your physical family. That there were things that you learned either directly or indirectly things that were handed down to you, maybe from their family before them, that you didn't really have any choice in. And whether they meant it to help you and be healthy or whether it was or wasn't is kind of honestly really irrelevant. The point is you were, things were chosen for how you would view the world. In fact, like if you were to really be honest and think about, you learned something about money. You were given sort of a set of beliefs about money from your family of origin, your physical family. Whether they taught you intentionally or not, whether it was helpful or not, again, doesn't really matter. But you learned some things about money, didn't you? Just from being in the family that you were in. What did you learn about planning, about saving, about giving? We talked about this a couple weeks ago. You learned something. You picked up something. You didn't get to choose. It was just sort of chosen for you. You picked up or you learned things about intimacy from your family. You learned about kind of what it means to connect to someone in a meaningful way. I'm holding this backwards because there's a name brand on here. I don't want to have to pay them money for it. So <laughs> you learned things about intimacy. You watched your parents, or if there was a parent that wasn't around, you picked up cues of what it means to really hold space with another, to be intentional with another person, to love someone as they are, to see them as they are. You learned things whether you realize it or not. You didn't get to really choose. It was just chosen for you. You learned, listen, you learned something about people who were different than you. 
You learn lots of different things about people who are different from you. Again, I'm not saying your parents taught you this intentionally or not, but you learned stories, you had beliefs about people who had different color skin than you or were part of a different ethnic group than you. You learned something about that. You learned something along the way. You picked up. It was chosen for you. Again, you didn't consciously get to choose beliefs about people who were poor, how they got there, or beliefs about people who were rich, how you might get there. You learned all kinds of different things about people who are different than you from the family that you come from. You didn't get to choose. You learned all kinds of different things about family in general, just about family in general, the value of family, what it means. So for some, maybe in your family, you grew up in family was everything. And so that was like the deal. You didn't miss a single family event. That first Thanksgiving you missed, that first Christmas you missed, I mean, that was, you, that was like a civil war in your family, right? And you learned that's everything. Or maybe for you, you learned that family was just sort of a function to get through life. And so there's not a lot of closeness or connection with your family or with your extended family. Uh, just uh, I want to say a word to uh, those who maybe grew up in a Christian home. So if you wouldn't call yourself a, a Christian or you're maybe exploring that, you're trying to figure out where faith and God fit in your life, you can sit back for a moment. Like this next one's not for you. You just get to watch all the Christians uh, squirm uncomfortably in their chairs for the next minute. But for you, maybe you grew up in a, a Christian home and you learn things, whether you realize it or not, you learn things about people who aren't Christians. Again, intentionally, unintentionally, it's irrelevant, honestly. Like, I grew up in kind of a culture where I went to church a couple times a week, went to a Christian school. Like, I was in a very significant Christian bubble. Whether my parents meant for that or not, that's just what was chosen for me. And so I learned that people who weren't Christians, I needed to be careful around them. Stay away, lest they lead me astray. <laughs> might start swearing or dancing or who knows what might happen if... <laughs> I let those heathens get too close. <laughs> you learn things along the way. You didn't really have a choice or a say in it. And, and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Paul just described it so beautifully. When you enter into the family of God, you're given a whole new wardrobe. You're given a whole new way of relating to God and to each other and ultimately even to your family. But so often what we try and do is we try and make the old way work. And we try and kind of keep it, keep those beliefs going, those practices going. Um, I'm going to pull a muscle here, so I'm probably going <laughs> to stop. It just, but do you see, like it doesn't, but you keep trying to make it work. That works. That's good. <laughs> this is a look. You're going to see it really quick. Like this is going to catch on. It doesn't it doesn't fit or it doesn't work. So why, why would you keep going back to things that you, again, didn't even necessarily get to choose, healthy or unhealthy, helpful or unhelpful? Why would you assume that those things would work for your life now? Again, I'm not saying that any of these things are necessarily bad in and of themselves. In fact, some of them are probably what you needed at the time to get through. They helped you sort of form your worldview. They just don't fit you anymore. So why would you keep trying to make them fit into your life? Instead, what, what Paul says is you've been given a whole new wardrobe that you get to put on. Oh, yeah. 
I make, I make this look good. I make this look good. You've been given a whole new way of relating to God and relating to others. You've been given a whole new wardrobe to put on that you'll never grow out of, but that you'll spend the rest of your life growing into. So much so, in fact, that it becomes the way in which you relate to God and you relate to others. Listen, God didn't just give you one family. He's given you two. One family formed you, but another one transforms you. That's the gift. One family, your physical family, forms you. And it's true, in wonderful ways and in difficult, even painful ways. They formed you. You cannot deny that. Whatever your story may be, and in fact, we're going to dive deeper into this next week, but they formed you. But your spiritual family actually transforms you. They transform you into who God created you to be. That's the gift they get to give to you and you get to give to them. They get to become the place and the people that you practice gentleness with. The place and the people that you practice humility with. The place and the people that you practice your God-given identity with. The place and the people that you get to practice forgiveness with. And the more we give ourselves to this spiritual family, guess what begins to happen? The more we actually begin to love our physical family. As beautiful and broken as it may be. Because what Jesus taught us is this family supersedes, is greater even than the family that we were born into. Now, if we get this one right, I'm telling you, you get this right, putting on the characteristics, clothing yourself in the characteristics of God, choosing every day to put this on as what you wear into the world, it will transform you from the inside out. It will and you get people around you who are trying to do the same, you will transform each other. And the crazy thing is this, the more and more this church, the more and more this family practices this, the more things begin to transform around us. Now, I want to say just a couple words in closing about this. This is really kind of important stuff for us to get. This idea of being a part of a new family, a spiritual family that helps me live like God created me to live and love like God created me to love, this has to be rooted in the reality of Jesus. I can't, I simply can't muster this up on my own. I can't try really hard to be more patient. I can, I'm going to exhaust myself. God has given you an inexhaustible source of patience, kindness, gentleness, humility. The Bible calls it the fruit of the Spirit always in season, ever blooming, always good for others. I can't do this outside of the reality of a relationship with Jesus. It just can't be done. I'll exhaust myself and defeat the whole point. And I would say this. I would say that this only works, this idea only works if we're actually committed to it and committed to each other. If the way that I come in here and try to relate to you is old habits, old ways that I learned that used to fit at a time but don't really fit anymore, it's not going to work. 
And if you kind of just show up here and just kind of, you know, take a seat, maybe just, you know, like, we're, like we do here. This is fantastic that we're gathered here. Do you know this is like the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg of what it means to be a spiritual family? It's wonderful to gather like this. But really, we're kind of just like passengers on a bus sitting next to each other. What really, what really, when it really happens is when someone you're in relationship with, their life hits the wall, then you get to put on compassion. You get to put on tenderness. When someone you know loses someone they love, you show up at the funeral. And then you show up the next day. And you stay with them and walk with them through the messy path of grief. This happens when someone's marriage hits the ropes and you show up for them and you put on peace in maybe what is a tumultuous time. That's when it really happens. That's when we get to practice what it means to be a new kind of family. It only works if we're all committed to it. If you're committed to it and I'm committed to it. And I would say it only really works if our arms are open to anyone and everyone, to being a part of this family. See, currently, right now, in our current cultural context, I'm greatly concerned for what is being viewed as Christianity. It is obsessed with power, obsessed with political prominence, obsessed with who's in, but more specifically, who's out. That's not how family works. That's how... That's what religion does. That's not the family of God. Because the family of God says that I'm invited, imperfect me, that God extends his love and invitation to be a part of his family to me. And if he invites me in, certainly there's room for you. And we may not agree or even see things eye to eye. That's not even the point. That's why he says to bear with each other, not to convince each other to get on our side or get out but to bear with each other and to say there's room in this family for all kinds of different opinions and beliefs and convictions. As long as we're rooted in the reality of God's love of what Jesus has done for us, come to the table. You are welcome to be a part of this family. We have to have our arms open. We have to have our arms open to people who might never even think about ever even coming to church or being part of a church. It's the people you work with. It's people who are in your family. See, this works when we choose every day to put on what God has already made available to you, what God already says is true of you. And when you do, when we do, remember when we talked about going to that friend's house that you loved going to no matter what? When we get this one right, do you know what this house becomes? It becomes a family that people are drawn to. That the world outside says, I don't know what it is. I know they're imperfect. I've like been around them for more than 30 seconds. But they're transforming. They're changing. There's something about the way they love each other. In fact, Jesus says that is the way the world will know that we belong to him. It's how we love each other. If we can't get this right, we have no hope of extending this to anyone else. But when you do, when I do, when we show up and put on the new wardrobe of the family of God, I'm telling you, people will be drawn to this house. People are being drawn to this house and to this family, to what God is doing here. God formed you for a family that transforms you. He made you for this. He gave you this, and it's more of a gift than you even know. 
But he's also given you another family that transforms you into who he actually created you to be. So here's our homework for this week. It's really, really simple, but really important. I thought about how do we talk about, how do you put on patience? How do you put on kindness? And I, I couldn't come up with anything clever or creative, so I came up with this. And maybe you'd be willing to do this today, not later this week, not later on, not like my text message, like put it off, put it off, like today. Would you tell someone in either one of your families, either your spiritual family or your physical family today, what you love about them, what you're grateful for about them? Would you just tell them today? Would you look them in the eyes? Would you call them on the phone? Like a text message for this homework assignment gets you like a C. That's as high as you're going to score. It's like a C on this assignment. So would you find, maybe it's someone here today at this church. Maybe it's one of our volunteers. Do you know that a bunch of volunteers got up at 5 a.m., showed up at 6 a.m. here this morning so that you could have the awesome experience you've had here today? Maybe if you have kids over in Soul City Kids, you need to grab them by the shoulders and say, I'm so glad you're a part of this family. Thank you for loving my family so well. You have no idea what that'll mean to them. Or maybe it's someone in your family that you need to call today and say, hey, I just want to let you know, I really am grateful for this about you. I really love this about you. That's choosing today to put on kindness, gentleness, love. That's the homework assignment today. And I hope you do it. And I I hope as you do, you'll get a taste of what it means to be transformed into this new kind of family that God's invited every single one of us into. So we're going to respond to God and to the reality of his love. And we're going to respond by singing to him, worshiping him and declaring the greatness of his love for us, that he is a perfect parent, would invite us into relationship with him. And we're also going to give back to God. This is a regular part of our worship. It's a way that we release the grip that our stuff has on us. Again, I don't know what your family taught you about money, but in this new family, we see money as a gift from God. It's just a tool that we can use to bless God and bless others as he's blessed us with it. So we're going to give back to God three different ways you can give. You can text in to give. That's amazing. We live in a beautiful world. You can text in to give. You can actually uh, give online. That's how Jeannie and I do it. It's the way that we uh, give so we can give joyfully and faithfully and consistently. Or in a moment, we'll pass uh, the buckets. No candy in them this time. Uh, And you can give that way. So in a moment, we're going to give. Before then, I'm going to have a little Mr. Rogers moment here. (laughs) Take this off so that we can pray. Will you join me as a family in prayer together right now? Abba, Father, Daddy, (laughs) what a gift. That we can even come to you that way and call you Abba, Daddy. That you've made a way for us to have a relationship with you. That you've made a way for our lives to be transformed from the inside out. God, whether we come from great families, whether we come from families that have been painful or difficult or challenging from us, All of us come from imperfect families. All of us are imperfect people, but God, you've offered us your perfect love, and by so doing, you've given us the invitation to be part of a new kind of family. And so God, that's what we want. We want to build our lives on the foundation, the reality of your love for us, to be a part of your family who across this world and throughout history have declared your praise and your name to be holy and worthy above all names. And so God, we give to you with joy, We sing to you as a heart of worship. And God, we choose to be who you created us to be. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.